On June 26, 2007, the United States Central Intelligence Agency released hundreds of pages of partially redacted documents, complying with a Freedom of Information Act request filed 15 years previously. The release of such documents is not uncommon, as all information contained within was no longer confidential, and all operations mentioned within were long since completed. It was the contents of these documents that made this so unusual. The documents were commissioned in 1973 by then-CIA director James R. Schlesinger when the press was accusing the CIA of being involved in the Watergate scandal. This was mostly due to the two burglars caught breaking into the Watergate hotel being former CIA employees that may have still been receiving support from the CIA. On May 7, 1973, Schlesinger commanded senior CIA officials to compile a report of current or past CIA operations that may have fallen outside of the agency's charter. This report, dubbed Family Jewels, due to the sensitivity of the content, was passed on to Schlesinger's successor, William Colby, in late 1973. Colby provided a briefing to the Justice Department in a closed-door hearing on December 31, 1974, and stating that of all the operations reported in Family Jewels, there were 18 different areas that the CIA were involved in that may have legal concern. Those 18 areas read as something of a who's who of government conspiracy theories, including surveillance and wiretapping of journalists critical of the CIA's actions at the time, opening mail to and from citizens of the Soviet Union and China, compiling files on over 9,000 U.S. citizens affiliated with the Vietnam anti-war movement, and funding of behavioral modification research on unwitting and non-consenting American citizens, including Project MKUltra, which was designed to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used to break an individual's resolve and force a confession. While each of these CIA actions on American soil could be their own episode, it is the legally questionable actions of the CIA abroad that brings us here today. In fact, the section that generated the most international response was the CIA's repeated attempts at assassinating world leaders abroad. I say attempts because none of the operations described in Family Jewels were successful, at least in the redacted version of the report. Attempts were made on the lives of Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, Dominican President Rafael Trujillo, René Schneider, Commander-in-Chief of the Chilean Army, and Cuban President Fidel Castro, all of whom were at least suspected of pro-communist leanings, albeit some of those leanings were considerably more confirmed than others. There were eight assassination attempts on Fidel Castro from 1960 to 1965 that were acknowledged by the report. But according to Fabian Escalante, a retired Cuban counterintelligence officer, that number is inaccurate. In fact, according to Escalante, the total numbers of assassination attempts on Castro number around 638 and didn't stop until around the year 2000. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is what? Explain. So why Fidel Castro, of all the possible leaders to concentrate on? What put such a bee in the United States bonnet that they concentrated a significant amount of resources from the largest intelligence agency on the planet to try and kill one man? Well, you have a few different reasons, but I'll try to summarize them as best as I can. First of all, you have the very precarious international situation abroad in the early 1960s. After the end of World War II and the defeat of the Axis powers, you had much of Europe that was reduced to rubble from the fighting. The economies of many countries in Europe were devastated, 
and there needed to be some injection of money and aid to get some of the countries working again. Two countries ended up taking two different methods to aid Europe. After they ended up driving the Nazis out of Russia, the Soviets continued westward, taking over formerly Nazi-controlled countries as they went. After Germany surrendered in May of 1945, the Soviet Union basically just kept the countries they took over as Soviet satellite states. All of a sudden, the Soviet Union was the major power in Europe, with a strong communist government bordering a bunch of very fragile capitalist economies. Many Europeans still saw the Soviets as allies and were more than willing to accept aid in exchange for favorable considerations. To combat this potential spread of communism, the United States enacted the Marshall Plan in 1948, which gave aid to Western Europe to assist in reconstruction, modernize some of the industries in Europe, remove trade barriers, and, arguably most important for the Americans, prevented the spread of communism beyond Eastern Europe. All European powers were offered Marshall Plan money, but the Soviet Union refused and blocked payments to the Eastern Bloc countries that they had taken over into their sphere of influence. The Soviets created a similar plan, called the Molotov Plan, in order to help rebuild the countries in Europe that were politically and economically aligned with the Soviet Union. These dueling plans basically created a two-power system throughout Europe, those aligned with the United States and those aligned with the Soviet Union. To keep the spread of communism from going any further, the United States developed a policy of containment to maintain strong alliances with the countries on the border of the Iron Curtain through economic or military assistance and make sure there was no domino effect. This domino effect being one country developing communist tendencies or having a communist government and then all the surrounding countries having more sympathy towards the communist cause or being destabilized by communist regimes. This policy of containment led the United States to make some very questionable alliances in hindsight, simply because they were enemies of communism. So, to summarize, the United States was very much willing to work with anyone, so long as they were against communism in general, and the Soviets in particular, to make sure that communism did not spread beyond the Iron Curtain. This was working fairly well, for the time, give or take a very protracted Korean War, until the ascension of Fidel Castro as president of Cuba, a country less than a hundred miles away from the American border. Also having a Soviet allied country directly in the middle of their sphere of influence was a domino effect waiting to happen, so in the minds of the US government, Castro had to go, in whatever way possible. Then there was the political situation internally within the United States, the Cold War in general, but more specifically the Cuban Revolution that ended in 1959 and put Fidel Castro in power, was significantly on the minds of the American people, to the point that it was an election issue in 1960, when John F. Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon. This was a time when many Americans felt that nuclear war was not only a possibility, but an inevitability between the United States and the Soviet Union. Kennedy ended up winning the election through electoral votes, though by a much smaller popular vote margin than the Democrats and Kennedy were hoping for, only 0.1%. As a result, Kennedy was the youngest president ever to hold office, and he had work to do to prove that he could keep America safe from any encroaching communist threats, including the one building in Cuba. On April 3, 1961, less than four months after his inauguration, 
Kennedy signed off on a plan created by the previous Eisenhower administration to overthrow the Castro regime in Cuba by use of CIA-trained anti-Castro Cuban exiles. On April 17th, the Bay of Pigs invasion began, as 1,500 Cuban exiles landed in Cuba. However, the Cuban military made quick work of them, and the exiles were all captured or killed two days later. Kennedy was forced to go to the bargaining table with Castro in order to secure the release of the exiles, which Castro did in exchange for $53 million worth of food and medicine. This event soured the relationship even more between the two, as Castro grew far more paranoid about American invasions, while Kennedy resolved not to lose face like that again, acknowledging that, quote, we got a big kick in the leg and we deserved it, but maybe we'll learn something about it. He appointed his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, to lead a commission to examine the causes of the failure of the attack. Additionally, John F. Kennedy pressured the CIA to come up with additional plans to remove, discredit, or kill Castro. The urgency of this assignment increased significantly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Soviet nuclear missiles were loaded onto Cuban soil, and it was only Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian president at the time, agreeing on a withdrawal of the missiles, that saved the world from going into nuclear Armageddon. For the two years that Kennedy was in power before he was assassinated, removing Castro from office was a significant priority for the CIA, and they were essentially given carte blanche to do so, as long as it could not be directly traced back to them. Finally, there was the economic reason. The president of Cuba before Castro was a man named Fulgencio Batista, who shared many of the traits common among dictators, including dispensing with his political opposition, refusing to give up power at the end of a term of office, and somehow maintaining the presidential office despite massive disapproval from the people. However, Batista was willing to work with the Americans, and many American companies had subsidiaries in Cuba during those times, including AT&T and Standard Oil. From a foreign policy perspective, Batista was a steadfast ally in the region for the United States, as he hated communists as much as they did. When Castro overthrew the Batista regime, he began to nationalize many of the utilities and assets that American companies had put into Cuba, including oil rigs and telephone lines. Additionally, he took over much of the private land holdings of wealthier Cubans to redistribute. Many of these Cubans ended up fleeing the country to Florida, less than 100 miles away, sometimes even on makeshift rafts. Many of the American companies who had assets in Cuba wanted them taken back, and the Cubans who had escaped the Castro regime wanted revenge against the government that made them flee their homes. These reasons were enough to point the CIA towards removing Castro by any means necessary. The attempts on Castro did not directly start with assassination. The CIA started with plans to destroy his image as a charismatic freedom fighter by methods that almost seemed like they belong more on a prank show. They had plans to do so in varying ways, including dousing his radio studio with a substance similar to LSD to disorient him during broadcasts and make him seem less confident. Additionally, they planned to attack his physical appearance by dusting his shoes with thallium salts when he left them out to be shined on a trip abroad. Thallium salts were a strong depilatory, making hair removal all the easier, especially if he touched his beard after touching the salted shoes. The thought was that having his beard falling out would make him seem less charismatic and authoritative. This plan was thrown out because Castro cancelled the trip that would have left his shoes open to salting. As he may have gathered, when it came to the actual method of removing Castro, very little was off the table. 
there were eight assassination plots that were confirmed by the CIA in the Family Jewels documents, and those ran the gamut from subtle poisonings to explosions. One notable attempt included the CIA recruiting one of Castro's ex-girlfriends, one Marita Lorenz, and having her smuggle poison pills in a jar of face cream while setting up a hotel rendezvous with Castro. The plan was to have Lorenz poison Castro's drink while she was getting ready. Unfortunately for the CIA, three things went wrong in rapid succession. The first was that Lorenz got cold feet in the hotel room and no longer wanted to go through with the plan. The second was that the poison pills dissolved into the face cream, making them unusable. The third, and arguably most important, was that Castro knew about the plan and confronted Lorenz about it when she came out of the bathroom. According to Lorenz, Castro, after asking her if she was in fact here to kill him, handed her his pistol to make sure that if she was going to kill him, she would do it properly. He didn't even flinch. He was so sure of me. We made love, Lorenz wrote in Vanity Fair in 1993. Well, it seems that some women just love a man in uniform. But not all of the CIA's plans involved turning ex-girlfriends into femme fatales. They turned the might of the world's largest intelligence agency on Fidel Castro and knew exactly what his likes and dislikes were and worked to try and turn those against him. Castro's love of cigars was also exploited by the CIA. As early as August of 1960, a box of Castro's favorite brand of cigars that the CIA infected with the botulism toxin was smuggled into Cuba and given to an unidentified person. It was never made clear whether or not the box of cigars ever got to Castro or if they were just taken by some security guard who thought they got a free box of cigars, but were fatally mistaken. The CIA also knew that Castro loved diving, so they attempted to create a fake, brightly colored shell filled with explosives that would be able to be detonated if he got near enough. The explosive shell plan never got past the drawing board. The CIA was also quite willing to use people beyond their own ranks. They found participants in the assassination attempts in members of the mob, who had a presence in many of the hotels and casinos in Cuba before Castro kicked them out of the country. The mob also had a vested interest in the removal of Castro, so many of the more hands-on attempts on Castro's life were aided and abetted through illegal supply lines that were conveniently overlooked by the CIA, and access being provided by Cuban officials that used to be getting kickbacks from mob operations on Cuban soil. Cubans who were forced to flee the country when Castro came into power were also used quite often if they needed someone who could pass as a local or could be used as a deniable asset to attempt an assassination while Castro traveled abroad. The Bay of Pigs invasion was not the first, nor was it the last, CIA use of Cuban exiles, but it was definitely the largest, and the failure therein led to a change in strategy, moving towards smaller operations using only a handful of operatives. However, the lack of success in the assassination of Castro, as well as the CIA's actions on American soil, led to the creation of the Church Committee in 1975, a U.S. Senate committee that was to investigate abuses of power by the CIA, FBI, NSA, and IRS. The committee released a report before it officially concluded their investigation, entitled Alleged Assassination Plots Involving Foreign Leaders which contained the committee's findings about the alleged attempts on the lives of Fidel Castro, among other world leaders. The committee recommended that the United States officially ban sanctioned assassinations of foreign leaders, which President Gerald Ford did reluctantly, signing Executive Order 11905. 
This executive order banned political assassination by U.S. government employees and put in place improved oversight on intelligence activities. But depending on who you ask, that executive order didn't stop all the attempts on Castro's life. In fact, according to Fabian Escalante, that Cuban counterintelligence agent who was charged with keeping Castro safe, they even ramped up with the Nixon and Reagan administrations. Escalante estimates that there were 638 different attempts made on Castro's life from when he took power until the year 2000, and he could even tie the timing of them to particular U.S. administrations. Whether or not all of them were related to the CIA, or even if the CIA had knowledge of all of them, is up in the air, or even if Escalante's information could be trusted, but it's a pretty significant gap between the American story and the Cuban one. Many in the political sphere in America saw Castro as the boogeyman next door, the failure of their policy of containment sitting less than 100 miles off the coast of the United States, someone who hated America and all that it stood for, a staunch ally of their worst foe, the Soviet Union. That is why the American government put such an emphasis on removing him from power. It didn't matter that he was mistreating the populace, nor that he started exhibiting many of the dictatorial qualities that Batista had before him. He was a communist, allied with the Soviets. Therefore, he had to go. And through a combination of luck, good security, and an ungodly amount of Soviet resources, Castro managed to not only survive the repeated assassination attempts, but some of them even managed to increase his standing, giving his government an enemy to rally against. As a final insult to the enormous amount of people trying to kill him, Fidel Castro died on November 25, 2016, at the age of 90. The cause of his death has never been revealed, but Castro had transferred presidential powers to his brother Raul due to his ill health eight years previously. So natural causes is a pretty decent guess. That being said, even by Escalante's estimates, there were only 21 attempts on the life of Castro during the Bush Jr. administration, far fewer than in any administration previous. This could be that the Cold War was essentially over after the early 90s, so Castro went from the representative of communism right at America's door to just another island dictator, and the number of attempts lessened. By the time 2016 came around, the Cuban exiles and their descendants may have been the only group with a particular axe to grind against Castro, making natural causes the far more likely case, rather than a 639th attempt that was finally successful. Fidel Castro once said that, if surviving assassination attempts was an Olympic event, I would win a gold medal. I'll say this, he makes a very strong point, and I doubt we'll see a leader who people try to kill quite this consistently for quite this long a time anytime soon. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who very kindly removes all the times my voice cracks. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at whatexplainpod, or on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the show already. I really appreciate it. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful, so if you have a friend, family member, or person that works in heavy machinery that you think may like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks.